One more uh, quick announcement. Uh, just a reminder that there'll be a ladies' worship night uh, coming up on November the 5th, Friday, November 5th. Uh, there'll be a sign-up in the lobby today and in the next weeks. So if you are interested in being a part of that, uh, please see them there or sign up there um, uh, as soon as you are able. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, several verses. We're going to be looking at two um, parables today in Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 3, going through chapter 22, verse 14. The text covers the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding feast. And you may look at the text and ask, why so much text today? And the answer is that the parables that we're going to look at are related to each other. Jesus is making here in these two parables a last appeal to the Jewish leaders. And the picture that we get from the parables is one of a patient and compassionate God. As well as a stubborn and hard-hearted people. Consider the song that we just sang, how he loves us. I think we see that picture displayed here in these parables. So let's read the text and we will get into it. Go ahead and stand and follow along. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven it may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, 
but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Pray, Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And today, Lord, we, we ask for your help. Father, that you would help us to see how compassionate, how patient you are. But also the seriousness of your call to follow you. Pray, Father, that you would help us to see you. To love you. To trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And have a seat. So we get into these parables, let's get the characters in these parables right from the beginning. The master of the house in the first parable, or the owner of the land, is God. The tenants are the Israelites, especially the religious leaders, and the son is Jesus. There's a purposefulness to the parable. Likewise with the second parable, in the second parable, the king is God. The Son is Jesus, and those who are invited are the Israelites. So I want to cover these two parables under three main points this morning. First, God's patience, and then God's people, and third, God's priority. First, God's patience. The patience of God is one of the most obvious themes through these two parables. He is so incredibly patient with Israel, and so incredibly patient with us. You consider God's patience in the first parable. The owner of the land rented it out to those who would tend the land, who would take care of the land. You notice something from the very beginning in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. God had done everything for Israel. He gave them deliverance from Egypt. He gave them a covenant. He gave them laws. He gave them land. He gave them love as well as kings and prophets to protect and instruct them. They had all that they needed. He prepared everything. He did everything for Israel. But what we see in both of the parables is they squandered it. Verses 34 and 35. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. The owner sends his servants to get the fruit that belonged to him, what had been grown in his land. 
But what do they do? Beat one, killed one, stoned one. Verse 36 tells us, though, that he sends more servants. And they did the same. This is patience. Patience. God is so patient with Israel. and He's so patient with us. The owner of the land had every right to punish, but he is patient. He's compassionate. We have to remember as we read these stories, this is a story about what really did take place. This parable is based on a true story. How Israel treated God's messengers. It's a picture of God's redemptive story. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 26 says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Jeremiah 25 verses 4 through 7. You've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Remember Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7, verses 51 and 52. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That's the point of this parable. It's saying to these religious leaders, you've done this all along. This is a story about you. It's what they had done. And just just as Jesus points out in the previous text, they rejected the last prophet, John the Baptist, as well. So what is the owner to do here? He has every right legally to destroy them, but again, he shows his love mercy, and patience. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. The tenants see the son of the owner of the land. And they think maybe the father is dead. And here's our opportunity. We can have all of this. This can all be ours. If we get rid of him, we've been living on the land for so long, it will be rightfully and legally ours. And so they plot against the son. This is exactly what the religious leaders were doing at that very moment against Jesus. But they missed the point again. God is patient. 
has been so patient, continues to be so patient. We see that patience in the second parable as well. Verses 2 through 6 of chapter 22. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a kingdom who gave a, uh, a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. You see the parallels here between these two parables. In this case, God is calling the people to him. But they rejected him. They reject and even kill his messengers. You notice the language here. You don't want to miss the language of the second parable. In the second parable, the call seems like one that, that would be irresistible to them. Come and feast. Come and feast. I've prepared for you a great wedding feast. Come, and it's yours. It's this wonderful invitation. Come and eat, but they won't have it. Again, what does he do? He shows patience. He calls again for them to come. These parables are a story of patience and love from God the Father. God is patient. The second thing we see in these parables is God's people. Who are God's people? We get a very real and clear picture of who God's people are here. It's not just those who identify as being religious. It's not simply the ones who show up at the temple or show up at church. As it relates to the, the religious in the parable, we see what Jesus says is in store for them, which is terrifying. So it's not simply the religious. We can't just say because someone's religious, they are God's people. The religious people here in the texts are condemned. Verses 40 through 46 in chapter 21. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds, because they held him to be a prophet. Let's just start with the fact that the religious leaders perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. And they're right. And in the midst of this story, they missed the gospel. In the midst of all of Jesus' teaching, they missed the gospel. 
They didn't believe in God. And therefore, they were not truly God's people. They cared more about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. You see that in the end of chapter 21. Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. They care what people think. And what does Jesus say will happen? The owner will not overlook their actions. Their crimes against God were severe, and so will be their punishment. God will destroy them and give the vineyard to others, which is referring to the church. In the second parable, it says that they will be left out of the celebration. They've been invited. They would have been welcomed. But they'll be left out. Jesus, Jesus says in the text, those who were invited were not worthy. So God's people are not those who are simply religious. God's people are those who believe, who believe His Word, who believe Jesus, who follow Him. Those who, when invited to come, come. Those who hear the voice of the Savior and come to Him to feast. It's interesting, there's another character in that second text, right? This guy that's at the wedding. What's up with this dude at the wedding, right? I mean, like, he's wearing the wrong clothes. When the king comes in verse 11, looks at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. There's this man at the wedding feast who doesn't have on wedding garments. He came to the wedding. He heard the invitation. He heard, hey, there's food. And he shows up. But he's not dressed in wedding garments. This is incredibly important as we consider who God's people are. Because we're looking at an example here that refers to the church. Whoever this man is, because he doesn't have wedding clothes on, he is bound and cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth which is referring to eternal suffering in hell and in the lake of fire. So what is this? What does it mean that he doesn't have wedding garments on? This is a picture of nominal Christianity. This wedding guest did what many do today, professed Christ but lived his life as if Christ didn't exist, having no evidence of saving faith. What comes with faith in Christ? What happens when we believe in Christ? We are clothed in righteousness. 
not because of anything that we have done, but because all that He is and all that He has accomplished. When we truly believe, we are clothed with righteousness. This wedding guest and those like him reject God until he finally rejects them. And Jesus says that rejection is eternal punishment. Cast into outer darkness. The Bible speaks of excruciating pain in a place where there is literally weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was at the wedding. He was in the right location. He didn't believe. This is not one of the Pharisees. This is not one of the religious leaders. It's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying judgment that is the direct result of rejecting God. God's people are those who believe. Those who truly and genuinely believe in Jesus and submit to Him. You cannot read the Gospels and the words of Jesus and come away with a different good news than that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God's people believe and God's people are clothed in His righteousness. And then lastly, the third thing we see in the text is God's priority. What is God's priority in this whole redemptive story? It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The Son is the main thing in the story. It's all about Jesus. These parables are ultimately about Jesus. The story of the gospel is about Jesus. He is the son sent to a rebellious people that would treat him differently. That's the hope. It's the hope in the first parable. That they'll treat him differently. This is my son. Verse 37 Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. This is the gospel. This verse is the gospel in the midst of these parables. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps, maybe they will respect him. It's the Son of God, not a prophet who is among the people now, and they still reject Him. They reject Jesus. Even as He's given every proof, every evidence that He is the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah who is to come, they still reject Him. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the son in this story. And there's a feeling in the parable of love and emotion and purpose. This is my beloved son. 
And God looked upon the world that he created for his glory, which had despised him and rejected him, rejected those who he sent to lead them and warn them. He loved the world. He loved the world. And he sent his beloved son as the only way of salvation. Romans 5.8, God shows his love. He demonstrates his love. He proves his love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's true today. That is present tense. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's priority in this text is Jesus. Look at verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the rock on whom the whole church is built. He is the cornerstone, and he points to scripture here to remind them that what he is saying is true. That what the scriptures say must be fulfilled. He's quoting here Psalm 118 verse 22. The cornerstone, when you think of a building, is a part of the foundation giving support to the structure, but it also finalizes the shape of the structure. It determines the shape of the structure. All the other stones adjust to this one stone, and Christ is that. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. The church is built on Christ. The church receives its shape, its direction from Christ. All of the stones adjust to this one stone, which is Christ. Though rejected by these tenants in the parable, the stone was accepted by God as the chief cornerstone. And he gives here a picture of destruction. To fall on the stone or have the stone fall on you means destruction. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. You could say the moral of this story is don't be against the stone. Luke eleven twenty three. whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. God's priority is Jesus. And if we are to be his people, he must be our priority as well. Look at how the text ends in verse 14 of chapter 22. For many are called... But few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. It shouldn't shock us at this point after everything else that Jesus has said. Jesus has been clear on this all along. It's a glorious truth about our Lord that God would choose anyone is what is shocking. The truth is we must respond if we hear his call. He still calls today, come and feast. 
there are many who are called who hear the gospel message, who sit in services like this week in and week out, who hear the message of the gospel, who may even give verbal assent, who may sing, but never truly believe. That's the man at the wedding. We dare not be those people. Hebrews 3, verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I would encourage all of us, consider the one presented in this text. Beloved Son of God, sent to seek and save the lost. This is my Son. Rightful heir of all things who willingly laid down his life for those who would receive him. Cornerstone, foundation, and head of the church. Judge of all who come against him and deny him. Oh, that we would receive him today. Consider the Lord's words, God the Father, as he spoke to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Is that true of us? Don't be like those in the parable, thinking that you have more to gain by rejecting the Savior. You think in the first parable, these ones who thought if we can get rid of the son, we get the whole inheritance. Those in the second parable who some killed those who were sent. Some went off to just live their life. They paid no attention, went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Being against Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that you kill his servants. It may just mean that you are more interested in living your life. Realize that he came for those just like you, just like me. He came to show God's love for you and make a way of forgiveness for all of your sins. When you consider the first parable, and him sending the son to receive the fruit. You're the fruit. If you're in Christ, you're the fruit. He's calling you. He wants you. For those here who are believers, are you taking your shape by the cornerstone? As a stone used to build his church, are you allowing him to determine your shape and your direction. That's the picture we get here when we think about Christ being the cornerstone. Your salvation is based solely on Him. He is the foundation, and we get our shape, our direction from Him. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. In 1 Peter 2, 6-9, through 9, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've been set apart for a purpose. And one of the ways we are blessed to proclaim his excellencies is through the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. Every single time, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You do that together as a choir, but you also do it to one another. It's a proclamation of the gospel to those who are around you and to yourself. And so let's prepare our hearts to do that. As we consider Christ, the cornerstone, the Son sent to save the world, let's remember Christ and His body broken and His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. You're so good to us, Lord. We see that in the text. You're so good to us. Again and again and again, you come and you show patience, you show kindness, you're compassionate to us, you love us, and you've proven your love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You invite us to come. We're completely unworthy. We think of the picture of you sending out into the roads and inviting all to come, both the bad and the good to come to your feast. We're unworthy, Lord. But you're so gracious. We ask you to help as we eat now. We take this bread and we take this cup, Lord. As we hold them in our seats and prepare to take them together as a proclamation of your goodness. A very significant way that we can proclaim your death. That we can proclaim the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Help us, we pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.